You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Jake Lazaroff, who is using Express and Node to power a service that lets you create audio visualizer videos from your audio clips. Jake, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your service? Sure thing. So yeah, my name is Jake Lazaroff. I've been into music and playing in bands for a really long time. And one of the tough things about you know making music is trying to promote yourself. So a lot of the times you get into music, you want to make music, but like the marketing aspect does not always come easily. Around, you know, like 2013, 2012, like the early this past decade, uh, like EDM was really big and you would see on YouTube a lot of these like music visualizer videos where you play a song and the there'd be this like waveform that kind of moves in time with your music. It's like an animated graphic that when you hear like a kick, this one part goes up or uh, you've probably seen them around. And so I wanted to make those and I quickly found out that there wasn't a super easy way to do that. There was like Adobe After Effects where it's like a professional editing software and you kind of have to get like very into it to make something cool. And then on the other hand, there's these like online services that were not necessarily easy to use or very flexible. And so I was like, I can build this. I can make a cool thing. And uh, that's how that came about. Nice. Yeah. So to help visualize this, since this is an audio podcast, it's like I've seen these even back in like the late 1990s, right? Where you had like these equalizers and it kind of just like jumped up bars depending on what frequency you were at, like based on the beat of the music. Is that kind of what you're doing? Yeah, that's exactly it. So yeah, if you, this is getting a little bit in the weeds, but if you think about like your low sound, you think an audio, you can think of it as kind of like a graph where like your low sounds, your bass, your low voices, your kick drums, they're going like the left. And then as you get higher and higher and higher, you're those frequencies go on the right and then it's just whichever like frequencies are dominant in the audio that gets like graph that goes higher in the the vertical axis and uh it just kind of looks cool when you you know when you're listening to music and you you see it right so then users of your platform they just upload a little audio clip of whatever they want and then they get that visual representation uh right after they upload it right yeah and then there's also options to you know like add in different graphics to add like animated progress bars. You can write text. So you have a lot of tools to kind of customize it and make like an eye-catching video to promote on social media, which for most platforms, there's not really a lot of options for promoting audio on its own. Like on Instagram, you can't just upload audio, an audio clip. You have to have some sort of graphic attached. It has to be a video. Twitter, there's no way to upload audio. It has to be like a video or like a link to a website. So yeah, it's like a it's tough if you're trying to promote something and you don't have a visual component like you're a musician or a podcaster, you you need to find some way to make make it visual. And so that's what uh that's what it does. Nice. So this platform that you've built, this service, has it just been you working on this full time? Yes, I am the uh, only developer and I guess everything else. Uh yeah, I'm I'm wearing all the hats. Although I do have to shout out to my brother Kevin who Helps me a lot with uh, um, like marketing advice and such. Right. Yeah, that's a lot of hats when you start introducing the marketing side after the programming. Yeah, it's uh, 
like definitely like a whole new world you're kind of like shifting entirely in like a t- totally different context yeah for sure so for building this app do you happen to remember how long it took you to go from just like an empty folder to shipping an mvp i would say a little less than six months um the first the first like iteration of it was I actually started playing around with like there's some like Python library for doing like compo- compositing video, and then I, I quickly realized that if I wanted to have like a video editing interface in the browser, I would need to go JavaScript just because I could run the you know I could run the same compositing and rendering code in the browser as I have on the server, and so when I started I got into that I started learning about all this digital signal processing stuff I had never really done anything there before. Um, and then, yeah, the first iteration of this was like very simple. Uh, I, there was like your web editor in the browser. I had like no accounts, no like persistence. You couldn't save your documents or anything. Um, and I just had like one server rendering these things and basically you'd send it off. It would send you an email when it was done and then you'd download it. And yeah, that whole process took about like, I think a little less than six months. Not bad. And yeah, this definitely grew in complexity in my mind now to know that you you actually have like a video editor, like editing a like a timeline in a browser. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a, a few like stops short of like a full on non linear video editor where you can, you know, like resize clips and stuff. It's a little bit simpler than that, but it's kind of been, you know, building up like day one, you could basically just it was you upload your audio and you get your waveform. You have a few customization options and then you could upload like a background and that had to have like all of your graphics and stuff in it and then we've or i've moved from that to you can have like multiple layers now you can have like text and stuff so yeah it's it's been growing in that direction and you have the live we have like like a live preview as well so that was the key thing that was missing from a lot of the other web audio visualizer creators was that you'd like upload your audio and then you just kind of have to like render the video and like hope that it turns out cool you couldn't there was no way to preview it live in the browser and like hear it play and see it react in real time. Right. Yeah. It's a big deal for sure. Cause rendering videos definitely takes a while. Yeah. So as for hacking around on this project, have you been working on it full time then all this time or just part time? I have not. It's been a, uh, nights and weekends type thing. Okay. And when, when did you officially launch it? Like, you know, you started sending traffic to it. That would be February 28th, 2019. So just over two years. So you have it down to the actual day memorized. Well, yeah, I every year, which I guess is just two years, I've done like a little birthday blog post, so it's still fresh in the in the memory. Oh, nice. So in those two years, uh, if you don't mind sharing, like what type of traffic are you dealing with nowadays? You know, whatever metric makes sense, like videos rendered or monthly hits or whatever. Yeah, sure. On the like the website, I get the low one thousands of page views per day. Sorry, that's the the app rather, not the uh, the marketing website. I actually don't know offhand how many the marketing website gets. But uh, I think the the cooler metric is that there's about 120 to 150 videos rendered per day. So that's usually when I'm like analyzing how I guess how healthy I think the app is, or all my like kind of performance targets are based on how many videos people are rendering, how many videos people are paying for. Nice. Yeah, that is a healthy amount of videos for sure. Congrats on that. Thank you. We just hit 30,000 total videos over the past oh like the two years which is kind of crazy to me that's like a huge jumper but uh yeah for sure so do you actually persist all of those videos then forever until like you know the lifetime of that person's account 
So the paid videos, yes. If you there's like a few tiers to it. You can vendor a video for free. It's 720p. It's limited to five minutes, and that will get saved for a week. And you'll get like a reminder video after sorry a reminder email after a few days that tells you you know download this or you're going to lose it. If you pay for a video, it's like 1080p. Uh, there's no watermark, and the amount of time per video that you can do goes up depending on like if you have a subscription but any all the paid videos are saved forever okay so have you gotten trolled yet where people just wanted to generate like a 17 hour video uh there's a limit on how long you can upload so initially it was 10 minutes since i added the increased tiers for different subscriptions the maximum limit is uh, sorry 60 minutes it sounds like we have a lot of good stuff to talk about then because i would imagine doing background processing on something that like a 30 or 60 minute video is a pretty interesting problem to solve, I would say. Oh, yeah. So that we, and then you get into, I guess, the, uh, you know, microservice versus monolith question, which I know you wanted to ask about. Oh, we will get there in due time. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but for now, let's start with uh, motivation. So what made you choose Express and Node in the end? Yeah. So uh, like I mentioned before, the, I had started out, this was like very early with Python. And then I realized that if I wanted to have like an editor in the browser, and to have the server running the same code so that like when you rendered your video, you got exactly what you saw in the browser, right? Uh, I basically had to go with JavaScript. So that was the choice. That was why I choose Node. And as far as Express, I mean, it's the most popular Node framework, it seems like. Uh, I considered Koa, but usually I'm more worried about like the community and the popularity, like how easy it's going to be to Google different problems than the technical merits. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I was hacking away on some like Dockerized Express example application and I forgot the number, but man, it was so popular. Like the NPM stats said something like 400,000 downloads in a week or something like that. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, crazy good if you're uh, working on an Express app. There's lots of uh, lots of resources. It's very tested. Right. So I'm not a hardcore Node developer or I don't use Express that that much, but uh, they have the concept of middleware, right? So what packages do you use to build your application middleware-wise? Like, do you use, like, a, I guess, a list of all the popular ones that you might be using? Not very many. I use uh, either Winston, I think Winston for logging. There's a cores, and then Sentry for logging errors. But honestly, the like the node side of the app, like the actual API server, is pretty lightweight. There's not a ton going on there. Okay. Do you want to maybe just go over briefly some packages you might have in your package.json file for the backend part? Like interesting ones that help build this app. For the API service, there's not, there's really not a ton going on there. There's, you know, there's Express. I have um, Express Session for doing sessions, like the, you know, user login, saving the cookie, um, Express Promise Router to be able to use async within my different like handlers. That actually might be even built in at this point. I don't know. Um, Bcrypt for password hashing. Various database drivers. Oh, I use I use KSUID for my my IDs, which is I think this was a, a segment library that they wrote in Go, and then someone ported it to Node. But it's basically like a UUID type thing, except it's like roughly lexicographically sortable, so I can like sort by ID and then for the most part, when I, things are sorted by time as well. Um, nice. Yeah, that, I mean, that's mostly it. I mean, we can get into some of the other 
the services, which most of them have their own package, but I think that'll come later as well. Okay. Yeah, we can jump into that. So, I mean, is this uh, a monolithic app then? Because it sounds like maybe it's not then if it's broken up into a couple different services. Yeah, I would say, sorry, by services, I meant like external services. I think it's it's mostly monolithic. Um, I think monolithic apps or mon- monolithicism, I don't know what the noun of that is, but it's it's a good fit basically for most apps, like when you're starting out. So like the workers and the API are like running on the same box. It's not, I think they, I use bull, which is this, it's like a node queue backed by Redis, um, but they, it runs all on the same box. Um, so there's no it's services there. The one exception, which is kind of peculiar to my app is for video rendering. You know, it's very different from serving API requests, which are like fast kind of like self-contained whereas video rendering is this like long background process and also it requires like a lot more cpu uh a lot more memory and storage so like the the requirements for video rendering and for a web server are totally different so that kind of is its own service but other than that everything's a monolith okay so you have that other service then running just as an independent service on the system the architecture gets a little bit more complicated there basically what i'm doing is because because it needs different CPU and like memory than the API server, I actually spin up different servers specifically to render videos. And that's gone through a few iterations, but what it looks like now is when someone renders a video, they'll like send a request to the API. That goes into a worker, which will manage like creating a whole new server. And then that server will live for like a long time and basically start rendering videos until its queue is empty. And so those kind of get spun up and spun down dynamically, depending on how many people are trying to render videos. Oh, wow. That sounds super interesting. So is that something that you just developed yourself then, like a homegrown solution? Yeah. Initially, initially there was just one renderer server that was like always on. And so I would just send every video there and... If a bunch of people wanted to render something at the same time, it would just kind of back up and be like a queue. And so that worked for a bit. It wasn't great, obviously, paying for this like always on much beefier server, even when I wasn't using it. The next kind of iteration of that was every video would get its own server. So the there was this like intermediary worker. Every time a video request came in, it would spin up a new server, send the video there, and then that server would render the video and then shut down as soon as it was done. That was a little bit better. You wouldn't get this long queue and I wouldn't be paying for servers that were just sitting there doing nothing. The downside was that if it takes like 10 minutes to render a video, uh, I use DigitalOcean for my hosting and they charge for servers by the hour. So if it takes 10 minutes to render a video, the server would render the video, shut down, and there's 50 more minutes that I'm just wasting there. So... To solve that, I developed this new system where it's it's very similar, except instead of just rendering a video and shutting down, they'll actually wait until like the end of their hour. And then if they're not rendering a video, then they'll shut down. And so I'll, I just like keep routing videos to idle servers. Ah, very cool. Yeah, you explained that very well because now it makes total sense. Now, do you think if in the future DigitalOcean changes their pricing to be per minute or something like that, would you just go back to just spinning them up, letting them do the work and go down, or would you keep your existing solution? Oh, probably. I mean, it's you know, it's more stateful 
than the that old solution, which generally to me means it's like less, it's worse rather. Right. So as for that service that you created, is that written in Node as well or something else? Yeah, right now everything's in Node. Uh, there's no no other languages in the stack. Okay. Now you did mention that this app is basically a monolithic app. Does that include having the front end as well as the back end in the same repo? Yeah, it's a mono repo. But I'm so the I'm not using Next or anything like that. Actually, this might even predate Next, or at least my awareness of Next. But yeah, it's using Create React app for the front end, um, and then the back end. They're both like subdirectories. I'm using Yarn for package management, and it has a pretty good system for handling like workspaces. And then there's another directory in there that contains kind of all the common code. So like the rendering and compositing code. That's the big one that's shared between the two. It's like the the front end and the renderer both use that. Nice. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you like how much code is shared between the two because it always feels like at least from the outside that there is some context switching between the back end and the front end, but it's cool to see that you're able to reuse so much code. Like how does it end up being reused in practice? So I try and structure the shared libraries as like little NPM packages. So the main two are the rendering and compositing libraries. Uh, The former is kind of just like a thin wrapper over the canvas API. It's just for drawing shapes essentially. And it gives me a little bit more control than canvas does normally. And then the other is the compositing one. And that includes like the waveform visualization code, the like text layout. And, you know, I just include that in the like front end renderer or in the, in the React app and then in the back end renderer worker. Yeah. Cool. So going back to what you said before with the real time preview, how do you end up doing the work? Like, do you do all the processing on the back end and then like send it over like a, a website channel to the front end or how does that work? Yeah, it's, it all happens in the browser. So basically you upload the audio, um, the, you know, there's browser APIs for like playing audio and just in the web browser. And then the, this is some of like the, where the shared libraries come in. So like for a given frame, the shared libraries analyze the audio and then we composite the like waveform and whatever else you have. And then we just render it to a canvas. So we're able to do that all in the browser without going back to the server. And then the server runs the exact same code when you render the video, it just like steps through every frame. That sounds very cool. Yeah. To not have to go back to the server and do a round trip to do all that processing and then back is uh, a very big one. Yeah, that that was one of the so there's like a few different levels of other services that do this. Like one is they will just give you, you know, you like type in stuff into a template and then you don't see it till there's the rendered video. Another thing that's common, uh, I think a lot of them use like After Effects might have like a developer API or something. So like you'll make some changes and then they'll like render a frame. And they'll show you a frame as like a preview, but you can't actually like see how your audio reacts. And then I think since I've released this, there's at least like one or two that do have like the the in-browser preview. But yeah, like when it came out, that was, you know, that was the workflow was like going to the back end and showing a frame. That was the best that a lot of these services had. And so, yeah, that was kind of the, the area where I knew that I could, you know, one up them. Right. So if you had to break it down roughly, uh, how much code do you, would you say you have like that's shared and then specific to the front end and also specific to the back end, like a split? So there's 16,000 lines of shared code. On top of that, the front end has another 18,000. That's mostly like React templates and CSS. Uh, and then the back end has 8,000. 
Okay. So I think that just definitely clears up this next question I would have asked, right? If this is like a server rendered app, but clearly API-based app with uh, a big React front end, right? Yeah. Okay. So do you happen to use Webpack to manage the front end or no? It's all create React app. You know, when I started doing React development, I would manage my Webpack configs and it always got very hairy and, you know, you end up spending a lot of time just wrestling with your configuration. I, I don't really find that fun, to be honest. So when I found out about Create React App, they just manage everything for you. And uh, <laughs> that's it. I'm sold. Hmm. Yeah, that is not my specialty. I didn't even know that existed and could be used as like an, I guess, what is it, like a higher level abstraction over uh, a Webpack config or is, it, or is it something else? No, that's exactly what it is. Okay. Do you want to go into like a little bit more detail of how that works in case folks out there aren't familiar with it? So it's very, it's actually very like high level. You, I think their official stance is like the Create React App API should treat Webpack as an implementation detail. So you really never have to deal with any of kind of like the guts of Webpack. And they really try and make it so that like the happy path of single page app development is taken care of. So they include support for CSS modules is built in. You can like import SVGs as React components. It includes like a dev server. You can proxy API requests if you need to do that. They do allow you to like, they call it ejecting, which basically means they will spit out the exact like Webpack config that you were running under the hood. And then you can kind of take it from there. But, you know, as someone who's not trying to like manage my own configuration here i i've been trying to avoid that yeah that sounds like a, a really useful tool because i remember once battling a webpack config like a straight up one and it took me like three and a half hours to get like fonts to load <laughs> yeah it's uh it's pretty miserable i just i mean i'm glad that there are people who are willing to take it on but it's uh it, it's not fun yeah it's one of those things like you battle through it you get it to work and then like you've, you're afraid to touch your config again use it for the next project and it works but it took a while to get there yeah. So going back to your app here, uh, you know, we've gone over kind of the node stuff and the front end assets a bit, but do you happen to deal with server side rendering at all, like for the marketing pages or do you use something else for that? So that's a Hugo site and uh, I just you know, put it on, I actually use Netlify for the like front end hosting. So I just push and uh, Netlify does some magic and it builds static pages and uh, yeah, we're good. So how's your experience been so far using Hugo as a static site generator? I really like it. Um, you know, I when I started doing web development and programming, it was with like WordPress templates and making, like you know, it was before JavaScript became like this whole big language that you could build an application with. So it is kind of like a nice, you know, back to basics type feeling. Right. Now, do you have that set up in a different repo or is that part of the main repo? I was part of the main repo because I had a a demo where I actually pulled in like those shared libraries again and used it to make a demo on the homepage. But I've redesigned the homepage and I added like a bunch of videos in there. And since there was no shared code, I decided to just, you know, make take that out, put it in its own repo. Cool. Yeah, I looked at the homepage before we hopped on the call and it looked very similar to like a Stripe homepage. And I don't mean that in a bad way, like you're copying them, but it had that feel of like a, like a Stripey theme. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that basically if you're making a SaaS in 2021, the likelihood that you have 
been inspired by Stripe's design is very high. Yeah, they definitely do a great job. It's yeah, it's fantastic. So is the entire app built with some custom like theme that you bought somewhere? Or did you like handcraft the CSS? Like which libraries do you use for that? No, that's that is all me. Um I, I use SAS just to you know, first like some net like nesting and variables and mixins. You know, it just makes it a little easier to manage your CSS and then CSS modules, which basically they'll like hash all of your classes so that there's no risk of collision. But no, I'm not using any like framework or anything. It's just me being very diligent about uh keeping things organized. Right. So what would you say, given like the amount of time you work on this project, like how much time do you spend finagling with your CSS versus writing some JavaScript? It kind of, I mean, it depends on what I'm working on, right? Like if I'm early this year, I kind of like tore out the guts of the rendering system and totally rewrote it. And obviously that is almost all JavaScript and no CSS. If I'm working on the UI, it's probably, probably like 60, 40 JavaScript CSS, but I kind of come from that background where my like early exposure to the web was like HTML and CSS. So I, I, I actually really like using it and I, I kind of am, I try to be like a perfectionist with it. Pixel perfect, right? Yeah. Definitely nicer than the olden days when uh, you had to open up Photoshop to like split up an entire layout into like 400 different images. Oh man, don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to your app, you know, you did mention this is a SaaS application, so probably involves payments. Uh, do you happen to use Stripe or PayPal or something else? I use both Stripe and PayPal. Ah, nice. So this is what, uh, where people can sign up and then they pay per month or maybe an annual plan? It's not something like pay as you go, right? So it's both. Uh, it started with, you know, just single videos. You'd pay for a video when you wanted to render it. And then I've since introduced like bundles where you can buy multiple videos at once for a discount. And then you just have like a certain number of credits that you can use to render videos without a watermark. And then you can also sign up monthly to get like a certain number of videos every month. Very cool. So for that credit system, do people just like top off their account with, I don't know, 20 or 50 bucks. And then at that point they can just use that for whatever credits they want to consume. No, they buy the credits directly. They have like bundles where you spend like 20 bucks or 40 bucks and you get like five credits at once or 12 credits at once. And then they can just use those as they need them. And it's actually the same system with the subscription. So when you subscribe, it's really, really, you're just getting like a discount on the credits, you know, for subscribing. Right. What would you say, if you had to guess here, like what is the ratio of people who sign up for the monthly service or annual plans or whatever versus the credit system? Probably like three or four to one. The, yeah, the, the single payments are, are much more popular than the monthly. So that's kind of one of my one of the things I'm trying to tackle right now is how can I make the monthly plans more enticing to get people to sign up and come back. Um, and then there's also, you know, the free tier, you can make 720p videos with a watermark and you can do as many of those as you want. That's not limited. That's even more popular, obviously, than the single use credits. Right. What does the watermark look like, by the way? It's just the song render logo in the bottom right corner. Well, that's not too bad. Maybe it's almost like too good in the sense that people don't mind having it there so they don't pay for it. Yeah, but I mean, the goal is that if they don't want to pay for it, they post the video, someone sees the watermark, and they come in, and they do pay for it. So ideally, it's a form of marketing as well. Yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah, I don't necessarily want it to like 
be so obnoxious that it discourages people, but maybe a little obnoxious so people can at least notice where the videos come from. Right. No, you're definitely doing a good job so far. If you've gotten 150 of them per day after like being up and running for two years. Yeah. That's awesome. So uh, for the payment side of things, do you have Stripe set up to use the strong customer authentication? I'm not sure what that is, actually. I just use Stripe Elements. Okay. That's the Payment Intense API. I think it does then. I, honestly, I just went I I went through their, you know, tutorial. Stripe has usually pretty good tutorials and uh I just set it up the way that they told me to set it up. But maybe I should revisit it. I, I don't know if things have changed in the past two years. <laughs> right. I think the SCA stuff the strong customer authentication. It may have been around two years ago when they introduced it. I'm not 100% sure, but it's the one where, you know, if folks have certain cards, especially in the EU, where it might require them to go and put in some PIN number to verify the, the actual transaction, then using the payment APIs with Stripe allows them to do that because then you can say like, hey, you know, this card requires some, you know, PIN number or something like that. So Stripe will just pop up a form, they can put it in and then everything gets processed. I, I will have to go and look into that. I think that their their credit card form usually does a pretty good job of like identifying where the credit card number comes from and then like asking whatever info it needs based on that. But uh, yeah, I will, I'll double check. I hope it's working already on the site. Yeah, it probably is, especially if you set it up within two years or so. Now for the PayPal side of things, how is that setting up their API? Yeah, that is much more painful to work with than Stripe. Right. So it's interesting because there's also Braintree, which is that company owned by PayPal. Did you consider using that as an alternative to using PayPal directly? I did, um, but I would have had to like move over my whole payment stack, basically. Or, I mean, they they accept like credit cards as well, um, but it just like I played around with it and it just seemed like not as easy to use as Stripe. So, uh, I didn't make the jump. So if you had to guess, like. How much time do you think you spend on the PayPal side versus the Stripe side for the implementation details? Probably like twice as much. It's uh definitely not like they 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 don't have like the libraries there. They don't have the documentation. Um, and then, I mean, the process is a little bit clunkier, which I realize is partially because they're kind of trying to wrap it more than Stripe is. Like they want to like protect the customer and like make sure that you're not like the customer's not exposing any sensitive information to you but uh it does make it a little bit more annoying to implement right so for implementing that then for stripe did you end up just using the official node sdk and you built on top of that yeah just all the official libraries stripe elements on the front end node sdk yeah that's it right so did you happen to build in any extra functionality for you on the back end like as like an admin panel to handle refunds and stuff like that? Or do you just go straight into Stripe or PayPal for that? I just go straight into to Stripe or PayPal. And then, I mean, I have my admin panel is a bunch of uh, endpoints that I've made that, you know, check like an admin flag on the user. And then I just, I have like an HTTP client and I just, uh, you know, make HTTP requests directly. Right. You mean like just using curl or something like that? Yeah, I I have like... It's called Paw for Mac OS. Um, so I just have like a bunch of them saved. But I mean, Carl would be fine too. Same idea. Right. That's pretty cool though. It definitely saves time not having to create uh, the UI for the admin dashboard. Yeah. I wish there were like better tools for that. I mean, I've used like Retool, but um, 
for if you don't pay for it, they will like not let you they don't give you like a an end user mode, so everything is, you know, editable all the time. Um so it I don't know. This is the this is the balance I've struck. Yeah, especially as a sole developer, there's like there's so many things to work on, right? It's like maybe you don't want to spend a ton of time on the admin because it's like you want to develop features for the front end that users can actually uh use. Yeah, absolutely. I I definitely have to like consciously push myself away from that and just be like, all right, you, you know, like no one actually cares about this other than you. So, you know, choose your, spend your time wisely. Right. So maybe now we can switch gears a little bit and talk about the rest of your tech stack. So you mentioned, you know, using Node, uh, you have Redis as the backend for your queue system. Uh, which database do you persist everything to? Is it Postgres, MySQL, something else? It's Postgres. Nice. Actually, I guess in the Node community, also MongoDB is pretty popular. So sorry for leaving that one out as a potential choice. Uh, it's all right. I'm not super big on like the, you know, NoSQL databases. There's like I saw. I'm not sure if it was a tweet or an article, but like you always have a schema. Yeah, I mean it. It just my C, sorry, SQL makes it. You know, it's very explicit. Right. Yeah, your schema is either let the database handle it or at the application level where I don't know. There's some trade-offs there. Yeah, for sure. So for Postgres, then, which database driver or libraries do you use on the Node side of things? Just the normal one. I think it's called PG. Is that the? Yeah, I don't use like a, a an ORM or anything. I just have kind of a folder in the API where I have like the query. That's my model folder, so to speak. And uh, yeah, I write the queries there. And then anything like in the request handlers and stuff, it's I'm just basically working with like those abstracted methods. Oh, okay. So you kind of created your own ORM to some extent. Yeah. It's uh I don't know if I'd call it an an ORM per se, maybe like a service wrapper or something. I don't I don't know what the Right. Just calling functions instead of uh raw SQL queries. But those raw SQL queries still get executed at those at those functions. Yeah. Okay, did you look into using an ORM and you just decided against it, or what made you roll with uh, raw SQL to begin with? You know, I used, I've like tried like a few in the past, and I've never been like totally satisfied. I've also, I think in general, I'm a little bit reticent to use technologies that have like a lot of like lock in. So, you know, if you using like raw SQL, it's like fairly simple to. If I want to like change my driver, if I want to, I mean, even change my database, obviously that's a little bit more fraught, but you know, I don't like, I don't really want to like couple my code to like a very specific like library. And also when I started, I mean, I'm the, the code base is using like TypeScript. I use TypeScript everywhere. And when I started building this, I, I don't think there was any database that, sorry, any ORM that really had like good type good types, good static typing. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So with this whole thing being TypeScript, do you find it to be very beneficial for you at like the code editor level so you can get some hints when things need to go where? Oh, yeah, I love it. I, I first used it for like a job, like my vocation, maybe four years ago now. And basically every JavaScript project I've started since has just been TypeScript. That's great. Nice. So going back to the rest of your tech stack here, you know, we covered the basics, right? Database, Redis, Node, et cetera. Uh, do you happen to run something like Nginx in front of the Node server or something else? Yeah, Nginx. 
Cool. So do you have that set up to serve your static files and also handle SSL? The, so the static files all go through Netlify. Uh, SSL termination is handled by Cloudflare. So I have and Cloudflare, hand, Cloudflare handles the DNS and then I use like their proxy DNS, which basically sends it through their own servers before it sends it to my application. That handles SSL termination and uh, you know DDoS protection and stuff. Right. Also hides your DigitalOcean IP address from the world, I believe, too, right? Uh, I guess it probably does. I actually haven't I haven't looked at what my zone file technically says, um, but yeah, you're probably right. Okay. So in development, do you happen to use Docker as well or no? No, I just run everything on my computer. I think maybe if I had, you know, maybe if I were working with other people, um, Docker might be something I would reach for, but it's, I mean, all the development has taken place on this one same laptop. Okay, so maybe next up we can talk a little bit about other potential services you might be using. Like, for example, when you send emails out, like a you know forgot password or password reset, which transactional email service do you use? I use Postmark, which I really love. And uh, hot tip, they offer a $75 credit for people running indie sites or I think early stage startups as well. So you get that free, those free months. Um, but yeah, I, I was using SendGrid and it was kind of slow but it was you know it got the job done and then there was like a a time where i i exceeded the free tier and i tried to upgrade and their support didn't answer for like a few days and so i was like all right i need to i need to figure this out so i switched to postmark and i turned out to like it a lot more and then actually for like building the emails i discovered mjml which is fantastic i mean it's making emails is never fun but mjml is the least not fun (laughs) yeah html emails are basically the worst thing ever so how does that tool help you out does it just like take care of all the gory crazy stuff and you can just focus on design parts yeah they have a bunch of like pre-made components it's like this html ish markup language uh and so they have components for like button that actually generates like a whole bunch of tables and you know outlook specific markup under the hood and it uh and it works right yeah email templates are so hard because there's so many different clients it's not even just browsers too man there's a lot of specs to consider yeah it's really not fun you basically have to just kind of draw the line somewhere and say like all right some people are going to see these and they're not going to look great and uh that's okay yeah so maybe now we can hop over to hosting everything so you mentioned you are using DigitalOcean and you know, you kind of spin up these servers, let them hang for an hour until they have no work, and then they get spun down. But do you have the actual like web server just running on one server or multiple servers? So there's actually a blog post on my personal blog about how I deploy this. I use like Terraform and Packer, and basically everything is kind of spun up from like Packer images, which Packer is basically a tool that will you run like a bunch of like shell commands. It spins up a server. And then you run a bunch of shell commands on that server, and then it saves like the resulting image. And then in DigitalOcean, you can use that image as like a template for new servers. So I have my my like server. I deploy my code by building an image with like that code and all the dependencies installed. And then I use Terraform to make a new API server and like cut over to it. So there's one or two API servers at any given time, depending on whether I'm in the middle of a deploy. 
and then there's like a load balancer that kind of routes back and forth between them. Nice. So is that load balancer the one provided by DigitalOcean, or did you roll your own on a different server? So it that's also running on DigitalOcean, but I'm running it. That's 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 nginx. Uh, DigitalOcean only provides like a, a network load balancer, so you can't actually configure it to you know serve your application in a specific way. Okay. So for that nginx setup, then are you going in there and editing your nginx config to bring servers in and out of the load balancer based on like a health check? Yeah, except it's uh, Terraform is doing that. I'm not doing it like directly. So yeah, when the new server spins up, basically I'll just modify the nginx config and set the the new server to like route some of the requests there, and then the old server will be there as a backup, so that I can minimize downtime while the new server is spinning up. Cool. That sounds like a very nice setup, especially with those uh, packed images, right? It means I guess. You're only limited by however long DigitalOcean takes to actually provision a machine, right? Like 30 seconds or whatever it is. If I'm spinning up a new server, like with a new, you know, a fresh deploy with like new code, then it takes probably like five or six minutes because it has to create the new image. But if I'm just spinning up an existing image, then yeah, it's like 30 seconds or something. And actually, the reason that I landed on this setup is because, you know, with new rendering servers being spun up, and down so often i needed to like find a way to have to basically spin up new servers with a specific image quickly and so this actually the like packer setup i started before i had this like blue green deploy thing for the rest of the app i kind of started there and like ported it back right that makes sense and at this point in time with so many videos being created you're really i guess never really in a spot where you don't have any workers to turn out videos right there's always at least one up almost always at least one occasionally i will like look at the DigitalOcean dashboard and there's none. And that's usually when I am just like, oh my goodness, I hope everything is working correctly. Yeah, usually there's at least one or two. Nice. So for all of these servers here, what uh, distro did you pick? I picked Ubuntu uh, for the same reason as Express. You know, I just, it's very popular and I just wanted something very, very Googleable or Stack Overflowable rather. Yeah, I run 20.04. Is that the, I basically run the, you know, long-term stable version of everything. No reason to live life on the edge here. Yeah, for sure. And when it comes to servers, stability is good, in my opinion. Yes. Desktop, eh, I'll go a little bit more new school, but servers definitely like the LTS. So for the web server, uh, what specs do you have for that? So it varies widely depending on whether it's the like application, sorry, the API web server or like the rendering server. So for the API load balancer, that's basically the lowest digital ocean server. It's like one shared vCPU, one gigabyte of RAM. It's like five bucks a month. For rendering videos, it is like a little bit beefier than that. It has like still one shared vCPU, three gigabytes of RAM. It's 15 bucks a month. And then for that's for free videos. For the paid videos, which render at like 1020p, sorry, 1080p, and can be much longer than like five minutes, uh, I use a much beefier server, which has like four dedicated vCPUs, eight gigabytes of RAM, a hundred gigabyte solid state drive. It's like 90 a month. I could probably downgrade the vCPU and RAM and use block storage. Cause right now the, one of the biggest constraints is if the video is long, just like keeping all the frames on disc, it takes up a lot of space. I mean, that will take development time to do that, but that's the, you know, that's the big one. 
right? Now, is that beefier box the, what do they call them, like the standard or general server, or is that like the CPU optimized one? It's the CPU optimized. The like API and load balancer and even the free renders can just be in the standard one, but need the uh, CPU optimized for the, the premium renderers. Yeah, for sure. Now, did you do any benchmarks to compare that versus the standard just to see like how much time it took to render some videos? Yeah, I I mean, it was very like ad hoc. I kind of just, I would basically like pick a, like a random one that seemed right and render a video and then kind of step down. And, you know, if it ran out of memory, I was like, oh, too far. And if it took too long, not a huge issue for the free videos, but I don't want people that pay for a video to wait forever. So I kind of like felt it out. It, uh, you know, it's a balance of like, do I want to spend more money and have things work like faster or do, am I okay saving some money and with everything be a bit slower? Right. Now you mentioned before, like, you know, there's a lot of disk space for all of this. Yeah. For the long videos, that is really the constraint. Like, uh, when I first introduced the ability to render videos longer than 10 minutes, like one of the first videos someone rendered like that ran out of disk space. So now speaking of disk space, uh, how much space do all these videos take up like between all the servers? So they're actually, the videos are stored on DigitalOcean Spaces, which is their object storage. It's like their S3 competitor. Um, And then I actually don't know what the breakdown is of video assets versus like project assets, you know, the audio files, the graphics that people upload. Um, But everything total is a little bit over 500 gigabytes. Okay. I'm also super happy to see that uh, you are using DigitalOcean Spaces because I've had a hard time trying to find folks using it and like, I want to use it so bad, but I keep hearing horror stories about like how slow certain like assets take to load. Have you found that to be a problem or are things fixed nowadays? I have not had any problem with it. Uh, yeah, it's been great for me. Awesome. Yeah. The horror stories I heard were like, you know, Hey, I have an image hosted there and it's taking like 400 milliseconds to load. But if I, if it's not on spaces, it takes like five milliseconds. Wow. Um, no, that, I mean, it's, it's been fine in my testing. Maybe I, maybe I should benchmark it. Um, I know Backblaze just released some, something they were, I saw them in, on Hacker News recently, but I mean, I haven't, no one's complained and it it seems fine to me. Awesome. Yeah. Actually, that leads into a good question that I forgot to ask you. So when folks upload their audio, you know, you provide them a link back to get to the video. Do you, do you just host it like off your domain as well? Or do you just expect them to download it and then they can just upload it somewhere else? I expect them to download it and then upload it somewhere else. Uh, basically any links that they get to the video, like the raw video file or any of the files really is like the pre-signed URL. So it, their URL is only valid for an hour or six hours or something so they will if they try to embed that directly it it will be a bad time ah so that makes total sense you had to have the expiring urls now if someone happens to be mid-download and it expires are they still able to continue downloading or will it just uh fail right then and there i'm honestly not sure but i i think i would be i would be surprised if it failed i mean it's you know this is not the i didn't build the auto expiring url this is like DigitalOcean or Amazon. So it seems like that would probably be a an edge case that they would have thought of. Certainly no one has complained to me that they haven't been able to download their video. Right. That makes sense. Like they probably have something where like if open connection, then don't like completely kill it or something like that. Yeah. Okay. So as for the servers, you know, you kind of mentioned everything is spun up 
using Packer and Terraform to build them and deploy them or, you know, get them up and running. Do you use anything else like on the command line, like Ansible or some configuration management to set anything up on the server afterwards? Like maybe that's not built into the image directly? No, everything gets built into the image directly. I actually was using Ansible uh, before this setup, but I would just run into some issues, especially with like the rendering servers where, you know, they're constantly downloading files and deleting it and they would end up just like running out of space from the deployment artifacts that weren't getting cleaned up. I tried setting like a cron job, but cron jobs are, you know, finicky creatures. Yeah, I, I got to the like immutable architecture setup that I have now. And so, yeah, everything's baked into the image. Yeah, that's definitely really cool to see because like, you know, that golden image or immutable image is kind of like, you know, almost like the Holy Grail because it's like the least amount of things that could possibly go wrong. Like the, it almost can't go wrong if you have the image, right? It's like if it worked, then you just know it's going to work because you're just running the same thing. Like you don't have to worry about waiting for packages to install or, you know, even like, you know, images to get pulled down if you happen to be using Docker. Yeah, exactly. Like once the image is built, you're you're good. Yep. So do you want to walk us through what your deployment process looks like from development to production? Like, let's say, you know, you just want to add some new feature to your app and then, you know, take us from there to it being live on the site. Yeah. So I, you know, I'll work on a, on a feature and then I commit it. Uh, I, and then everything is wrapped with make. I use make files like a task runner and there's not, I don't have any sort of CI running. Everything runs on my laptop right now. I think with like centuries, like code stuff, I have to push it to GitLab before I like upload the release to Sentry or it yells at me. But yeah, I mean, there's like a Netlify CI, so Netlify CLI that I run on the laptop to deploy the front end and Terraform and Packer both run locally. Nice. So for getting secrets into Terraform and Packer, uh, how do you deal with that one? Those are stored in the repo. I know that's bad, but uh, I think <laughs> I think if if I ever had to bring someone else into the code, I would invest in like figuring out an actual way to store the secrets. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's okay. Uh, I'm not the police. <laughs> that's good. Not trying to go to jail over secrets in my GitLab repo. Right. But it is interesting, though, because, you know, like on paper or if you're reading Hacker News, it's like, oh, my God, you're storing secrets in the Git repo. Are you crazy? Like, but here you are, like two years later, number of times been hacked, probably zero. Like it works. But, you know, as a solo developer, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. Yeah. I mean, I think like a lot of those security practices are meant to protect against, you know, people like rotating in and out of your organization or if you're like maybe like a very big target. But. It, I mean, it's it's just me. There's someone would literally have to like either hack into my laptop or like into the Git repo in order to get it. But I am, you know, painfully aware that it is not a good practice. Right. Now, if you do bring someone on in the future, uh, I hope you are well versed in doing Git amendments. I'll probably just roll them, to be honest. Or, I mean, I would roll the secrets. So like even if they got access to one of them or whatever, uh, it would just be defunct. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, that's definitely the safest route for sure. So you mentioned that uh, when you're deploying new code, this whole thing takes like five or six minutes to spin up, but you do have the load balancer up and running. Does that mean that most deploys are zero downtime? Yeah. So basically what happens is, I mean, the load balancer doesn't know anything until the last minute. Like Packer is just kind of doing its thing. That's just like locally and 
on that one server. And then when that image is built, that like last, you know, that's like 30 seconds to a minute. That's when Terraform kind of changes the infrastructure. And there is like a cutover period where the Nginx config has been changed and it's like possible that the new server isn't totally ready yet. But that's why in like the Terraform, sorry, in the Nginx config, uh, I have the existing server as like a backup host. So if there's any requests that get sent while the new server is spinning up, it can't respond to it. Nginx should just route it back to the existing one. Uh, when you're talking backup server in Nginx, like you have multiple upstreams defined in there, I guess, right? In that little block? Yeah, exactly. So speaking of upstreams and being able to you know, have a backup there, do you want to give us a, a little bit more detail on how that works? Yeah, it's pretty simple. Um, there's, you know, I have the config where I have like the both sets of upstreams, um, which is the currently live server and then the one that's coming up. And then I basically just mark the currently live server as a backup. So first it will try the server that's coming up. And then if that fails, it'll, it should retry the request on the backup one. When I, you know, when I like I'm done with the deploy, I'll get rid of the old set of servers and then it it's just the live one. I haven't really had any issues with like requests being dropped or anything. So there's usually only like one, unless I'm doing an deploy, there's only one API server at a time, but you know, hopefully I'll grow beyond that where I need multiple ones. Right. Hopefully. Yeah, for sure. That'd be awesome. It is so cool though, to hear how that is set up because that seems like it's so much easier in a way than having to deal with running like multiple copies of your app on one server, but on different ports and it can get pretty tricky to do that. Yeah, I, I've actually never, I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, you know, this is kind of a learning experience for me. Uh, so it, it basically went from like Ansible to to this. I think the old deploy process, what I would do is like build it in a different folder. And then um, I had like a sim link in like a directory. And then like the process would point, I, like, I basically use, I use system D to manage like the node process. So that process, so the system D file would point to like a sim link and then I just like restart node. So it actually used to be downtime when I used Ansible. So that's another advantage of the system. But yeah, this is kind of the first service that I've managed this way. The first that service that I've built the backend totally on my own like this. So, you know, it's a, a journey of discovery. Yeah, that's pretty much uh, the developer story, right? Just figure things out as you go, improve as you go, learn new cool things and uh, evolve basically. Yeah, absolutely. Now, speaking of evolving and, you know, things being tricky, maybe, how do you deal with database uh, migrations during the deploy process like this? I will do the database migrations out of band. So database migrations, I run, I use a tool called dbmate, which kind of manages all the migration files. And yeah, I just run those manually from my computer. Now, sorry for my silly question here, but when I hear things like dbmate, I think like textmate for Mac. Like, is this like a, a node package or is this like a Mac specific tool? I think I think it's written in Go, so it's very portable, but it's basically like a database agnostic migration tool. And you, you can write your migrations as like plain SQL files. Um, it saves like the a snapshot of your schema so that if you need to, you know, like spin up another one, you can easily do that without just running all the migrations. That's pretty nifty. Nice. Yeah, it's the first time I heard about that one. I'll make sure to drop it into the show notes. So speaking of databases, though, and potential disasters, hopefully there haven't been too many, but uh, do you do any backup routines? Like, do you just 
SQL dump things to spaces or block storage or something like that or something else? So DigitalOcean uh, has, they do backups and they have, I think, like daily backups and they also have point in time recovery on top of that. So yeah, I use the, this is on their hosted databases project product. So I use that for both Postgres and Redis. Um, and then, you know, periodically I'll kind of take a dump, especially before I do a big migration. But yeah, I, I, I don't really, like databases are the, I'm I'm fine like managing web servers like it's I'm not like super super familiar with it but I know enough to like do it I think fairly well but databases are like a whole other a whole other beast and I would rather let the pros do it at least for now yeah for sure I'm the same way and it it, it is really nice to know that DigitalOcean they have the managed Postgres service since I don't know must have been around two or three years by now I forget but I guess it was around when you started day one right or no. Not quite day one. Um, so yeah, actually, so when I started, there was no, I didn't have like a database even because there was like no, there was no persistence. Right. So there was no like need for me to have a database. Um, and then basically as soon as they, I think they released it not that long after. And that was like right about when I was trying to add like account features and stuff. So it would have been, yeah, like two years ago ish. It was right around the time I launched. It was like very, very convenient timing for when I wanted to add like a database to song render. Yeah, that must have been pretty cool. It's like you go to bed and you're like, man, I just wish there was like a hosted database. Then you wake up and it's there. Yeah. And they had, I remember they had Postgres before MySQL and I knew I wanted to use Postgres. So it was just like, yes. <laughs> now, other types of backups, uh, do you happen to back up what's available on DigitalOcean Spaces, like all those videos? Or do you kind of just like treat that like S3 where, of course, it's durable, like it's not going to go away? Yeah, uh, the latter. Um, although I have been looking into trying to do it to like back it up to Backblaze or something. It's a, it's a, I've I've done like some googling around. Surprisingly, there's not a ton of resource and like resources on syncing like an S3 bucket somewhere. And if you know of anything, I would be happy to. I would love to hear. Yeah, I'm not too sure off the top of my head. I know there's like an S3 sync command, but I think that's mainly just for getting things into the bucket. I'm not sure about getting them out in bulk like that. But I'm sure, I don't know, S3 has been around for so long and it's such a massively popular tool. There has to be something out there. Yeah, I'm, sh I'm sure I'll, I'll find it at some point. Right. Now, continuing on with like disasters and unexpected events here, do you have anything set up on DigitalOcean for alarms and alerts? Like, you know, maybe using their built-in monitoring stuff based on like, hey, the CPU is at like 80% for, you know, 10 minutes or something like that? I don't really have any, I don't have anything set up based on like the specs of the server. I do have like alerts set up based on like the logs for application specific events. Um, I use paper trail for the logs. And so basically if, you know, if certain like errors happen, um, I have it configured to send me like emails or discord messages. Right. Do you happen to know off the top of your head, like the last type of couple errors that you may have to deal with and like what caused them? Um, usually it's like rendering related things. That's, the API is, you know, kind of just keeps chugging along. There's not a ton of things that go wrong there. But, you know, with the rendering, it's like I've had I've actually had like issues where like sometimes you spin up a server and it like can't connect to like your database. So I think that that's like one thing I've run into issues with DigitalOcean. And I've started trying to use like their their VPC stuff more explicitly now rather than just use the normal 
data center VPC, and I haven't had any issues for a minute. So, you know, fingers crossed, but it's like that. Sometimes it's like out of memory uh, or out of disk space. This is all on the renderers. Um, but, you know, usually when it happens, I like try and figure out, all right, what's like the root cause here and like fix it going forward. So it's been pretty quiet for the past few months. Nice. Quiet is good. Definitely when it comes to errors. Yes. But I hate to give like unsolicited advice, but this seems like such a perfect thing. Like with the DigitalOcean monitoring, you can hook it up to where you can have it monitor your disk space and just be like, hey, I'm going to email you when the disk space hits like 80%. This way you don't have to get like a hard error. You can kind of like sort of track it and figure it out like before it becomes a problem. Oh, that's, uh, no, I'm I'm here for the unsolicited advice. <laughs> it's like you literally go into your DO dashboard and just set it up. It's like two minutes. All right, I will. I will do that as soon as we get off this interview. Um, but yeah, I mean, all those ten- do tend to be more ephemeral though, because like the the render servers are spinning up and down so you know so frequently. Um, so like if if I have an issue with like the you know with like the disk space, it's usually because like someone has rendered something very long, and I just like didn't account for that. It's not that you know, files have been like accruing over a period of like weeks or months. Yeah, that's true. So I'm not sure how useful that would be in the end. Yeah, because all the files are just sitting there in spaces, like the big ones that persist. Yeah, but I'll still do it. I mean, I'm always maybe not happy to get the alerts, but I'd rather get it than like just like check randomly and realize that things have been going wrong for hours. Yeah. Yeah, I think they have alerts for CPU, memory and disk space, maybe network, but memory could be interesting. I don't know. Yeah, there have been times when I've run out of memory, but I mean, for now, it's I think I've reached like the point where at least with like the current set of constraints, I've uh, kind of figured out like the servers that I need. But, you know, if I ever do decide to like you switch to like block storage for the premium videos and downgrade the specs on that server, since I'm it's definitely too big, that'll become an issue again. Right now. How do you protect yourself against like the paid users who might be on a monthly plan where I guess, can they just like upload as much as they want then? Have you ever had anyone try to take advantage of that by just continuously uploading or, you know, trying to take your service down? I've never had anyone malicious. I mean, there are definitely like heavier users, but uh, so, I mean, yeah, so far no one has managed to take it down. You know, honestly, like I'm fine if people like upload a bunch Uh, right now, even like the storage is only like breaking only now is it like going past uh the the like minimum pricing for digital ocean spaces so you know maybe maybe like down the line if like it gets really out of control i'll start needing to figure it out but uh yeah even even the people that have like that have rendered like dozens of videos a day it's like able to handle it fine that's awesome yeah i haven't looked at do spaces in a while isn't it something crazy like 100 gigs for 5 bucks a month i think it is 500 gigs for five bucks a month. And then I believe it is like two cents a gigabyte after that. Um, Man, that is such a good deal. My math might be wrong, but it's basically it works out to like another like to it works out to five dollars per 500 gigabytes. But after the first 500 gigabytes, it's like per gigabyte. Right. So, by the way, if you're comfortable sharing this, uh, what does your DO bill look like nowadays? So it. it because the renderer servers get spun up and down depending on demand, it varies, but uh, I would say it's usually like 
around 120 to 150 dollars a month depending on the traffic and you know how like the the pattern of people rendering videos if i can like reuse the render individual renderers more it's obviously more efficient than if i like the average number of videos per render is low right yeah that is not too shabby i mean you have a pretty beefy setup going there you know like video uh encoding and creating stuff like that is such a cpu intensive thing and yeah 120 bucks a month not that not that bad yeah it's uh yeah i <laughs> yeah it's pretty good cool so by the way uh we didn't go over this for that managed database server that you have the postgres one uh what specs do you have on that one yeah those are just the minimum specs same thing for redis and the redis is only using like a percent of the storage yeah, it's kind of funny in like every web app I ever create, the Redis setup is like just sitting there like twiddling its thumbs like, come on, just give me some work to do. Like it's always sitting at like one or two percent. Yeah, uh, it's really I mean, I, I guess I could manage it myself too. like it, I mean, I could save 10 bucks a month, but it's just one more thing to worry about. So they can they can have my money. It'll be over provisioned and uh, I will sleep at night. <laughs> yeah, sleep is definitely good. And by the way, uh, speaking of uptime on your site, do you have anything checking like the main homepage, like the marketing page or the app page, just to see if it's still like throwing a two hundred? Yes, I have Status Cake that is checking all of the above. Cool. So I'm not familiar with that service. Do they just check it like every minute or every five minutes or something like that? I think it's every five minutes. I think. Yeah, I'm on the. They have a free tier, so that's why I I chose them. And uh, I think they'll do every five minutes on the free tier. Yeah, it's, it's definitely nice when you can sit back and use the service for free and actually get like a lot of value out of it. Yeah, um, <laughs> it definitely is. Actually, I guess in some way, uh, your service is like that, right? If people don't mind the watermarks. Yeah, that's true. I, you know, I built it because I was in bands trying to figure out something and, you know, lots of people who are in bands are not super eager to spend a ton of money. Um so it is nice to be able to like provide them something that's useful, even if they don't have the spare change to spend a lot. Yeah. So do you actually get uh, like positive feedback from folks who have created these visualizations from their audio clips? Yeah. You know, when I made the this like redesign of the site, I ended up reaching out to like a lot of people who made like videos that I thought were particularly cool. And yeah, I mean, some of the feedback was it's very encouraging. It's and then also like I'll occasionally like look online. I'll search for like song render just to see if people are posting and like tagging me or maybe not tagging per se. Some of them do, but some of them just write like made by song render. And it's like really cool to see what some people make. Some of it's like, you know, music. Some people use it for podcasts. I think there's if you look on like YouTube, there's someone that is just like visualizing like bird calls with it, um, which I mean, I don't know, like if if that's what if that's what you're into and like i can help you do that then uh it makes me very happy yeah that's really cool and that probably wasn't like a use case that you thought of right away no uh as far as i know they're the only person uh maybe with any service that uses the makes bird call visualizer videos (laughs) so by the way like what are some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this app so i know someone is like at least one person has mentioned this on your podcast before but I really like the uh, the article, choose boring technology, and I've definitely like tried to do that and tried to you know all my servers are just it's like running on a simple Linux server uh, behind like nginx. There's no no real surprises. Every I've tried to choose my technology to basically be as 
you know as googleable as possible uh i i think it's just i think it's i think it's helped definitely in keeping things like manageable and able to fit in my head right yeah you can never really go too wrong with boring tech and you know on the topic of that article inside of that article there you know it mentions this idea of like innovation tokens did you apply that to this project as well i wouldn't say directly but i do like i i never sat down and looked at my stack and was like all right where am i going to spend these tokens but i do try and think about just like more abstractly like all right what what are my differentiators what do i want to like build in-house versus it's fine to you know npm install or whatever you know no one uses your app for its tech stack like the i'm like i'm a programmer so the obviously like the the desire to spend a lot of time having like the perfect setup is like very strong ultimately i have to just be like i have a limited amount of time and there's cool things to do like all over this app so we're just gonna have to pick and choose and if something is like less than perfect like so be it we'll make that sacrifice to make things better in another area right yeah no i think that is great advice right just pick something and run with it because otherwise you just stay in your own head and it's like you never get anything done because it's so easy to just compare stuff yeah i find that it's like if i spend a lot of time on hacker news i get like more into the mindset of like thing you know things have to be perfect everyone there has like such strong opinions and i i think it's easy to get kind of swayed by that so i kind of have to like you know push the orange website aside when i'm making tech decisions right less orange site more whatever color your code editor is yeah <laughs> so jake thanks a lot for coming on the running in production podcast it was really great having you on yeah thank you so much it was very fun being on yeah so before we wrap this up do you want to share any links to your site twitter github profile anything like that sure thing so songrender is songrender.com and at songrender on instagram and twitter um there's also a link to discord community at the bottom and if you're interested in this please drop by say how say hello um my personal blog is jake.nyc and i'm on twitter at jlazaroff okay that's a lot of good stuff i'll make sure to drop links to all of that in the show notes and on that note to everyone listening thanks for tuning in and i'll see you in the next one you've been listening to the running in production podcast you can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.